You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Simon Winchester, the author of many acclaimed books, including The Professor and the Madman, The Men Who United the States, The Map That Changed the World, The Man Who Loved China, A Crack in the Edge of the World, and Krakatoa. Simon was also awarded the Order of the British Empire for his service of journalism and literature. He lives in Massachusetts and New York City, and he joins me today to talk about his new book, Pacific, which publishes by Harper on October 27th. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. All right, so now I'm going to read the subtitle of this book, which is Silicon Chips and Surfboards, Coral Reefs and Atom Bombs, Brutal Dictators, Fading Empires, and the Coming Collision of the World's Superpowers. I loved this book. And I loved the fact that in the foreword, you talked about the difficulty of sort of choosing what to include in the book and how to present this this vast subject matter. And you talked about how the way you wanted to sift through the events of the modern Pacific and, and sort of present the truly pivotal moments in the story. So before we get to all of that, I want to ask you to sort of do the same thing with your biography, because you have led such a rich and fascinating life. And I, th- I thought about how to synopsize it and, and give everybody a sense of all the different things that you've done and how you got to this point. But rather, I'm going to ask you to do it. So so give us a few of the uh, pivotal moments in, in your life story. I suppose the first pivotal moment was the discovery in, I think it was um, February or so, 1959, that I was red and green colorblind. Because up to that point, I had wanted desperately all my childhood to be a sailor, to be in the Royal Navy, to command an aircraft carrier, putting down small wars in corners of the British Empire. But I went for the to Dartmouth, which is the British equivalent of Annapolis Naval Academy, and passed all the exams, all the academic and you know, psychological and all the rest of it exams, until this awful moment, which truly was pivotal, when the doctor, having sort of done his stethoscope business, opened a book of circles with little dots and said, what number do you see there? And I said, 27. And he said, really? I'll show you another one. He showed me another circle with dots. And he said, what number do you see there? And I said, 43. And he shut it with a terrible finality and said, Mr. Winchester, I'm terribly sorry to have to tell you that Her Majesty takes a rather dim view of people that cannot tell red from green, and that means left from right at sea, driving her very expensive warships around the world, so you'll have to take up another profession. And so I drifted for a while, went back to the school careers office, and I obviously had a thing about men in shorts. I didn't want you to read too much into that, but the picture that tempted me to be an admiral showed an admiral in white shorts at the helm of an aircraft carrier. And back at school, there was another picture of a man in khaki shorts wielding a hammer, which said, be a geologist, tour the world. And so I read geology at Oxford and went off to East Africa and became a geologist. And so that was a pivotal moment. And if you just very rapidly, another third one was that, not a very good geologist, I hasten to say, but sitting there on the border border between uh, Uganda and the Congo 
in the mountains, the Ruanzori Mountains, I read a book called Coronation Everest by James Morris, which was James Morris's account of being the London Times correspondent on the expedition that got to the top of Mount Everest in 1953. And I read this and I thought, this is what I want to do. Instead of driving a ship, which I can't, and instead of wielding a hammer and a bottle of sulfuric acid, which I'm not very good at, why don't I just take a pen and a notebook, wander around the world as James had done, and be a reporter? And so that I wrote to him and he said, yes, it's a wonderful life. You won't get very rich, but you'll have a fascinating life. And so I went back to England, left Africa for good, and uh, became a journalist. And that's really how it all unfolded. We'll jump forward to this this wonderful book, Pacific. Set the scene in terms of um, what you believe the this ocean represents then and now, and sort of why you even chose this subject matter uh, to study and, and to write about in detail. Well, I had I had written a book, uh, which Harper was kind enough to publish about four years ago, on the Atlantic Ocean. And the thesis for that book was quite simple. The Looking at bodies of water as being sort of crucial to the development of humankind, it is fair to say that the Mediterranean was the classical, was the inland sea, if you like, of the classical world. And if you believe that, then it's fair to say, I think, that the Atlantic Ocean is the inland sea of the modern world in that you know, people crossed it to get to America, the, the New World and all the rest of the immigration of the 19th and early 20th centuries and so on and so forth. Having said that, then I think it's a logical extension to say that the Pacific, which is where mankind, having gone all round the world, east quite literally meets west yes. in the Pacific Ocean, that you could say that the Pacific is the inland sea of tomorrow's world. So if you accept that thesis, which obviously I hope the critics will, um, then how do you do it? Because it is vast. I mean, 64 million square miles, you could put all the world's continents into it and you'd have room to spare. So the number of stories and peoples is utterly overwhelming. So I've always been a believer that the, the three cardinal rules for writing a moderately successful nonfiction book is, first of all, you've got to have a good idea, and I hope this is a good idea, Good writing is, is nice, but it's not the second most important thing. The second most important thing I've always thought is structure. You've got to structure mm. the book properly. And this was a big dilemma for me, how to structure this overwhelming entity, the Pacific Ocean. And then I read a book by a man called Stefan Zweig, who's generally forgotten, although he was a, essentially the narrator in the Wes Anderson film um, The Grand Budapest Hotel. So he's sort of come to a little bit of recent prominence. And he wrote a book in the 1920s about 10 decisive moments in world history. And they were very eccentrically chosen, but beautifully written. And the structure was such, you said, wow, he's right. These 10 events do really indicate the direction that the modern world has, has taken. So I thought, let's choose 10 events from the vast number of things that have happened in the Pacific, let's say, from 1950, which seems to me the date that the modern Pacific uh, is dated from. So I looked through you know, literally, I won't say thousands, but certainly many, many hundreds of events in newspapers and academic papers and so forth, and then s from those selected ten that to me, and once again the critics may not agree, um, seemed to me to betoken trends in the way the Pacific was developing. And so that's the structure of the book, based on Stefan Zweig, but 10 items between 1950 and uh, 2014, 2015. While you sort of 
diminish the importance of the writing, what I found so successful in this book for me as an audience is the writing was so engaging and so entertaining. You were like a, a fun dinner party companion who was telling these wonderful tales of the invention of the transistor and other things. I learned, you say you're learning now, well, I learned it. An awful lot yeah. of this I didn't know. So as you say, the invention of the transistor, I had no real idea about how the Japanese learned after they took instruction from the people at Bell Labs who made the very first transistor in, in, in the early 1950s, how they brought it um, to Japan and perfected it and made it completely brilliant and enabled it because the original transistor was only powerful enough to power a hearing aid. Mm. And in Japan, people don't wear hearing aids. If they go deaf, they go deaf. That's, that was the old view. But they thought, well, wait a minute, this can be used to power a radio set a radio set which isn't plugged into the wall, isn't a piece of furniture like most radio sets were, you can take music or um, speech or news with you. And this was an extraordinary idea, and especially born out of a country that had been smashed into yeah. smithereens in, in World War II. But this wonderful man, Masaru Ibuka, who I think most people aren't aware of, I, I think you yes. probably didn't know much True. about him, who was one of the co-founder of the Sony Corporation, built this device, and they it went on sale in the mid-1950s in America, and suddenly the transistor radio became something that everyone needed to have. And th that need allowed the beginnings of this astonishing consumer electronics revolution, and so container ships, initially from Japan and later from Korea and later from China, and presently from China, flooding in under the Golden Gate Bridge to supply the never-ending appetite for electronics and new technology within America. That was one of the one incident that changed the, yeah. the, the complexion of the Pacific Ocean. And, and that's an unchanging technology, because I have a tiny little Sony transistor that I listen to the Yankee games on when I'm in the <laughs> garden. So, it's, right. and it's 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 the same as ever. Well, that's wonderful. So tell so that was my favorite. Now, having learned some new things, which I guess you did. What 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 was your what was your favorite chapter, and what was your favorite thing to sort of rediscover and 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 dig deeper into? Well, I had a wonderful time. I can give two answers to that. I loved the fact, and I learned this first of all when I spent these weeks in Hawaii, that. The gift that the Hawaiians gave to the United States in the bicentenary year of 1976 was a canoe, a 60-foot-long, twin-hull sailing canoe called Hokulea. And Hokulea was presented an opportunity to, to young Hawaiians to learn the age-old technique of sailing the seas without any instruments at all. No sextant, no wristwatch, no binoculars, no... GPS, certainly. Yeah, yeah. No compass. Only one man in the mid-1970s was believed to hold that secret. Which called, he was called Mao Piaolug, and he lived in the Caroline Islands, down in uh, south, way, way south of, of Hawaii. So he was brought to Hawaii, first time he'd ever been on an aeroplane, taught these young men how to navigate, and this canoe, canoe is a sort of a, yeah. selling it short, was yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. Ma a massive yeah. craft, sailed to Tahiti, two and yep. a half thousand miles without any navigational equipment at all. I think there are now 300 Hawaiians who can do this. And this craft, which is now you know, 40, 50 years old, is now, as we speak, yep. sailing around the world and without any instruments at all, using the techniques that we 
the Westerners have, who abandoned. have, have yeah. abandoned, and yet the Polynesians mercifully has preserved. The other one, I mean, much more trivial, and which I was fascinated to learn about, is the sport of surfing. Yes, which and became, the whole surfboard, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which became uh, fascinating in America after 1958 or 9, I think it was. The movie. With the release of the film Gidget. This was a sport born in Tahiti, later uh, sort of expanded into Hawaii. And then in 1907, Jack London discovered it, wrote an article in the Women's Home Companion saying this is the sport of kings. It took off in California. Gidget made it take off around the world. I, I love that. The gift. I love that too. And you use that, that story of the navigation without tools as sort of as, as, a, as a bookend to, to start to think about what we how we should change our thinking around Pacific and, and, and just sort of life in general, which we should probably stop to think about less about modern warfare and more about, you know, um, respect and, and, and learning from the past. And, and if, you, if you could expand on that a little bit. Yes, I think that the word respect is absolutely key. To, I'm glad, so glad you said it. Because so much of the story of the modern Pacific Remember, the Pacific was not known to Westerners until Balboa saw it in 1513 and Magellan crossed it in 1520. Since then, whenever the West, Western peoples, have advanced across the Pacific, they have generally left in their wake ruin and despoliation and illness and disease. And I give some pretty unpleasant examples of that. We never in our history, in our Western history, respected or seemed to respect the people who we encountered, whether they were Polynesians or Micronesians or Melanesians or people of the East, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans. We conquered them, we divided them, we regarded them as... Backward or... Somewhat backward. And yet they weren't. I mean, I wrote this book called The Man Who Loved China, which once again Harper was kind enough to publish, about the antiquity of Chinese science, that almost everything from the wheelbarrow to the stirrup to air conditioning was invented. We think we did it, but no, the Chinese did. And this book sort of reinforces that idea that the ideas that are born, homegrown in, in and around the Pacific are things that we should not ignore, that we should respect. And, and the, the Hokulea, that canoe, managing to get around the world just by listening to the ocean and watching the clouds Amazing. and the seabirds and the stars and doing it without fuss is something that we should treasure as human beings. Absolutely. And so I think this voyage of, of Hokulea, it's called Malawa, Malama Honua, which is, means respect for the world, is something that we can learn from this great ocean. It wasn't something I expected when I started work on the book, that it would be an ocean that would teach us something, but I believe it does and should. Absolutely. Now, talk to me a little bit about your work and your writing. And one of the things that I think is so distinctive to your work is your use of language and and your complete mastery of it. You just, again, you seem to expose us to language in a way that a lot of other writers don't. And you, you do something on your lovely website where you have a word of the day, where you give an etymology and a little bit of information. Where do you, where did you get that that love of language, a love of words? I think from my father, quite honestly. we He was an engineer, a precision engineer, but he had a fascination with the English language and particularly with crossword puzzles. Crossword puzzles in England are, are different from American ones in that they are, offer what are called cryptic Yeah, clues. they're cryptic puzzles, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he was very, very good at them and he, I would, as a small boy, would look over his shoulder and he would teach me how to do them. And then 
we would buy two copies of the same newspaper every day and we'd put a box of cornflakes in between of them and we'd race to see who finished them. And he always beat me until one moment, talk about pivotal moments sometime, yeah, I guess, when I was about 15, when I beat him. And I, my, he was chagrined but sporting about but it. But proud. I'm sure he was proud, he too. He was very proud, indeed. And and we graduated. The the, the epitome of, of, of the sine qua non of English crosswords is called the Zimini's crossword in The Observer, where you're encouraged to use not the OED or any of the classic dictionaries, but Chambers' 20th century dictionary. Oh. And that, to me, is full of wonderfully obscure words. Who is your first reader when, when you're working and, and you're now going to sort of... Do you, well, let me ask you this. Do you show people, uh, your readers, your first readers, chunks? Do you wait till you're all done? And, and who, who reads it first? Well, uh, contentious chapters, chapters that are, in my view, somewhat difficult, particularly involving um, Asia. Uh, I often read to my wife because she's Japanese and has acute sensitivities. But my son, my oldest son, who is a very keen student of the English language, lives in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. And I tend to send him the material. Interesting. He's he's an eagle-eyed copy editor for a start and points out all sorts of errors. So I always acknowledge him. He figures in every book I've written. Okay. And Rupert Winchester is a, is a, a great figure. And um, the fact that he lives in Cambodia in the East, knows Hong Kong very well, knows Japan pretty well, he was enormously helpful. So my wife and my oldest son. Oh, that's lovely. And when you're, when you're working, um, are you reading only your research materials, I would guess, because it's so time-consuming? Or, or are you able to read... Other things that may be complementary things are well, in addition to the research. I, I think, quite honestly, when I, I have this routine, I get up at 5.30, I go off to my study, which is a building 100 yards away from the main house, and, and write or at least correct what I'd written the day before. And at 8 o'clock, I print it. So there's a sort of an approximate first draft. I come back and have breakfast. Then I write from 9 till 4 normally. Then I go and do a bit of exercise. Then i back in the study at wow. 5.30 prepare the material for the following day, but then, 8 o'clock, have dinner and completely shut off and okay. uh, and read something wholly unrelated. Uh, okay. So I remember the last book I was reading, which clearly has nothing to do with um, the Pacific, is Cormac uh, McCarthy's The Road. So it yes. couldn't be more depressing and uh, non-Pacific a book. Yeah, well, that was, that was my next question. I always ask everyone, what was the last conversation you had about a book and, and what did you say about it? Well, I've just done a book review, a book about China, and uh, the author, a young English-Chinese lady, um, said that one of her guiding uh, lights in the world of literature which helped her write this book was the French writer Georges Perec, who wrote one quite famous book called La Disparition, which in English is translated as Avoid, and which in neither La Disparition nor Avoid is the letter E used. He was just playing. Oh, I think I've heard about this. Exactly. But to me, that's an amusing, a conceit, that book. But he also wrote a book called Life, a User's Manual. And that, to me, is the finest book I have ever read. Really? And I keep it by my side all the time. And if this Susan Barker is the name of the woman who I've just written a review about, she blesses him. And you can see passages of her book, which clearly Mm. are influenced by Georges Perec. And I would love to think one day someone will say of a page of mine, this reads rather like George Perrich's okay, Life so, of Users Manual. Yeah, so that was my next question. Who who would you hope to to sort of emulate so it would, it would be he? Well, um, yes, in, indeed. Um, I think probably 
most of all him. Um, I mean, there are one or two other writers, but but Georges Perrich, to me, little known, published by, you know, by an obscure publisher in Boston, quite popular in Europe, but not very popular in America. He needs to be read. He's a remarkable, remarkable writer. Well, I just wrote it down. Good. So I'm, I'm going to put it on my list. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. And one one other question I ask folks is, sort of in addition to asking them about writing, I asked them a little bit about their experience being published. Um, you've, you've published a number of books. You've published over the course of, you know, 10 plus years. What are, what are the things that, that have changed the most and what do you find sort of the most rewarding and most challenging now, you know, after uh, so much of the, the change that we've seen in the industry? Well, I, I funny that we're, we're talking here in, in a studio. Uh, the whole resurgence or, or, or kindling of the, probably not right, the right word to use, but of the audio book, which is to me wonderful. I mean, I so many people come up to me now and say, you know, love your books, which is obviously very nice, but we listen to you driving from Chicago to, yep. to New York or something. And this doesn't happen in Britain, largely because the journeys aren't long enough yes. to accommodate really long uh, books. But uh, I always say, you know, I know I have a rather soporific voice and I'm afraid, I mean, the, the comeback is, well, I hope you didn't go to sleep because people, I've, people have said to me, in fact, last week, I think someone said, I was waiting while my wife was in labor and I was reading your book and it lulled me. I was going to say, to sleep? And he said, no, no, I, I kept awake, but it is rather soothing. And um, it's very gratifying. And when people, I tell you the nicest thing of all. Let's hear it. When people say to me, I missed my stop on the subway. Perfect, yes. Well, you do a tremendous job reading. I will also tell you, so, so I think it's important to note that you read all of your own audiobooks. And, and there are very few authors who can do it, truthfully. You do a marvelous job, and we thank you for that. And I think that this is the perfect place to end. Everybody can now go uh, run to the store and buy the audio edition of Pacific. And I thank you so very much. You're very kind. It's lovely to be here again. Thank you for listening. I'm Ana Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.